0: Introduction of Lives of the Most Remarkable Criminals Who Have Been Condemned and Executed for Murder, the Highway, Housebreaking, Street Robberies, Coining, or Other Offenses, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Gallagher. LIVES OF THE MOST REMARKABLE CRIMINALS WHO HAVE BEEN CONDEMNED AND EXECUTED VOLUME ONE EDITED BY ARTHUR L. HAYWARD INTRODUCTION TO CLOSE THE SCENE OF ALL HIS ACTIONS HE WAS BROUGHT FROM NEWGATE TO THE FATAL TREE AND THERE HIS LIFE RESIGNED HIS RACE is RUN AND TYBURN ENDS WHAT WICKEDNESS BEGUN IF THERE BE A HAUNTED SPOT IN LONDON it must surely be a few square yards that lie a little west of the marble arch, for in the long course of some six centuries over fifty thousand felons, traitors, and martyrs took there a last farewell of a world they were too bad or too good to live in. From remote antiquity, when the seditions were taken, ad furcus, diburnum, until that November day in 1783, when John Austin closed the long list, the gallows were kept ever-busy, and during the first half of the 18th century, with which this book deals, every Newgate session sent thither its thieves, highwaymen, and coiners by the score. There has been some discussion as to the exact site of Tyburn Gallows, but there can be little doubt that the great permanent three-beamed erection, the tripled tree, stood where now the Edgware Road joins Oxford Street and Bayswater Road. A triangular stone led into the roadway indicates the site of one of its uprights, In 1759 the sinister beams were pulled down, a movable gibbet was brought in a cart when there was occasion to use it. The movable gallows was in use until 1783, when the place of execution was transferred to Newgate, the beams of the old structure being sawn up and converted to a more genial use as stands for beer-butts in a neighboring public-house. The original gallows probably consisted of two uprights, with a cross-piece. But when Elizabeth's government felt that more adequate means must be provided to strengthen the subject's faith and enforce the penal laws against Catholics, a new type of gibbet was sought. So in 1571 the triangular one was erected, with accommodations for eight such miscreants on each beam, or a grand total of twenty-four at a stringing. It was first used for the learned Dr. John Storey, who, upon June 1st, quote, was drawn upon a hurdle from the Tower of London unto Tyburn where was prepared for him a new pair of gallows, made in triangular manner. Unquote. There is rather a gruesome tale of how, when in pursuance of the sentence the executioner cut him down and was, quote, rifling among his bowels, unquote, the doctor arose and dealt him a shrewd blow on the head. Doctor's story was followed by a long line of priests, monks, laymen, and others, who died for their faith to the number of some three thousand. And the triple tree, the three-legged mare, or deadly nevergreen as the gallows were called with grim familiarity flourished for another two hundred years in the early eighteenth century it appears to have been the usual custom to reserving sentencing until the end of the sessions but as soon as the jury's verdict of guilty was known steps were taken to procure a pardon by the condemned man's friends they had indeed much more likelihood of success in those times when the law was so severe, than in later days when capital punishment was reserved for the most heinous crimes, on several occasions in the following pages, mention is made of felons urging the friends to bribe or make interest in the right quarters for obtaining a pardon or commutation of the sentence to one of transportation. It was not until the arrival of the death warrant that the condemned man felt that the Tyburn tippet unquote, was really being drawn about his neck. No better description can be given of the ride to Tyburn Tree, from Newgate and along Holborn, than that furnished by one of the familiar letters written by Samuel Richardson in 1741. I mounted my horse, and accompanied the melancholy cavalcade from Newgate to the fatal tree. The criminals were five in number. I was much disappointed at the unconcerned and carelessness that appeared in the faces of three of the unhappy wretches, the countenances of the other two were spread with that horror and despair which is not to be wondered at in men whose period of life is so near, with the terrible aggravation of its being hastened by their own voluntary indiscretion and misdeeds. The exhortation spoken by the bellman from the walls of Saint Sepulchre's churchyard is well intended, but the noise of the officers and the mob was so great, and the silly curiosity of people climbing into the cart to take leave of the criminals made such a confused noise, that I could not hear the words of the exhortation when spoken, though they are as follows. All good people pray heartily to God for these poor sinners, who are now going to their deaths, for whom this great bell doth toll. You that are condemned to die, repent with lamentable tears. Ask mercy of the Lord for the salvation of your own souls through the merits, death, and passion of Jesus Christ, who now sits at the right hand of God, to make intercession for as many of you as penitently return unto him lord have mercy upon you christ have mercy upon you which last words the bellman repeats three times all the way up to holborn the crowd was so great as at every twenty or thirty yards strip struck the passage and wine notwithstanding a late great order against this practice was brought to the mis- malefactors, who drank greedily of it which i thought did not suit well with their deplorable circumstances After this the three thoughtless young men, who at first seemed not enough concerned, grew most shamefully wanton and daring, behaving themselves in a manner that would have been ridiculous in men in any circumstances whatever. They swore, laughed, and talked obscenely, and wished their wicked companions good luck with as much assurance as if their employment had been the most lawful. At the place of execution the scene grew still more shocking, and the clergymen who attended was more the subject of ridicule than of their serious attention. The psalm was sung amidst the curses and quarrelling of hundreds of the most abandoned and prolificate of mankind. Upon them, so stupid are they to any sense of decency, all the preparation of the unhappy wretches seems to serve only for subject of a barbarous kind of mirth, although inconsistent with humanity. And as soon as the poor creatures were half dead. I was much surprised to see the populace fall to hauling and pulling the carcasses with so much earnestness as to occasion several warm encounters and broken heads. These, I was told, were the friends of the persons executed, or such as, for the sake of to-night, chose to appear so, as well as some persons sent by private surgeons to obtain bodies for dissection. The contest between these was fierce and bloody and frightful to look at, so I made the best of my way out of the crowd, and with some difficulty rode back among the large number of people who had been upon the same errand as myself. The face of every one spoke of kind of mirth, as if the spectacle they had beheld had afforded pleasure instead of pain, which I am wholly unable to account for. One of the bodies was carried to the lodging of his wife, who, not being in the way to receive it, they immediately hawked it about to every surgeon they could think of, and when none would buy it, they rubbed tar all over it, and left it in a field scarcely covered with earth. In a few words, too, Swift draws a vivid picture of a rogue on his last journey through the London streets. His waistcoat and stockings and breeches were white, his cap had a new cherry ribbon too tight. The maids through the doors and the balconies ran, and said, Lackaday, he's a proper young man. But as from the windows the ladies he spied, like a bow in a box, He bowed low on each side. Execution Day, or Tyburn Fair, as it was jocularly called, was not only a holiday for the ragamuffins and idlers of London. Folk of all classes made their way thither to indulge a morbid desire of seeing the dying agonies of a fellow being, criminal or not. There were grandstands and scaffolding from which the most favored could view the proceedings in comfort, and every inch of window-space and room of the neighboring roofs was worth a pretty penny to the owners, in his last scene, of the career, of the idle apprentice, Hogarth drew a picture of Tyburn Tree, which no description can amplify. As the procession drew near, the hangman clambered to the crosspiece of the gallows, and lolled there, pipe in mouth, until the first cart drew up beneath him. Then he would reach down, or one of his assistants would pass up, one after the other, the loose ends of the halters, which the condemned men had had placed round their necks before leaving Newgate. When all had made fast, Jack Ketch climbed down and kicked his heels until the sheriff, or maybe the felons themselves, gave him the sign to drive away the cart and leave its occupants dangling in midair. The dead man's clothes were his perquisite, and now it was his time to claim them. There is a graphic description of how, on one occasion, when the murderer, quote, flung down his handkerchief for the signal for the cart to move on, Jack Ketch, instead of instantly whipping on the horse, jumped on the other side of him to snatch up the handkerchief, lest he should lose his rights. Then he returned to the head of the cart, and jehooed him out of the world." Unquote. As the cart drew away a few carrier-pigeons, which were released from the galleries, flew off cityward to bear the tidings to Newgate. Perhaps as good a description of the actual event as can be obtained is contained in a letter from Anthony Storer to his friend George Selwyn, a morbid cynic whose cruel and tasteless bon mots were hailed as wit by Horace Walpole and his cronies. The execution was that of Dr. Dodd, the, quote, Macaroni Parson, unquote, whose unfortunate vanity led him to forgery and tyburn. The date, June twenty seventh, 1777, is considerably after the period of our book, but the description applies as well as if it had been written expressly for it. Upon the whole, the piece was not very full of events. The doctor, to all appearances, was rendered perfectly stupid from despair. His hat was flapped all around, and pulled over his eyes, which were never directed at any object around, nor even raised, except now and then lifted up in the course of his prayers. He came in a coach, and a very heavy shower of rain fell just upon his entering the executioner's cart, and another just as he was putting on his nightcap. During the shower an umbrella was held over his head, which Gilly Williams, who was present, observed was quite unnecessary as the doctor was going to a place where he might be dried he was a considerable time in praying which some people standing about seemed rather tired with they rather wished for a more interesting part of the tragedy the wind which was high blew off his hat which rather embarrassed him and discovered to us his countenance which we could scarcely see before his hat however was soon restored to him and he went on with his prayers there were two clergymen attending on him, one of whom seemed very much affected. The other, I suppose, was the ordinary Newgate, as he was perfectly indifferent and unfeeling in everything he did and said. The executioner took both the hat and wig off at the same time. Why he put on his wig again I do not know, but he did. And the doctor took off his wig a second time, and then tied on the nightcap, which did not fit him, but whether he stretched that or took another I did not perceive. He then put on his nightcap himself, and upon his taking it he certainly had a smile on his countenance, and very soon afterwards there was an end to all of his hopes and fears on this side of the grave. He never moved from the place he first took in the cart, seemed absorbed in despair and utterly dejected, without any other sign of animation but in praying. I stayed until he was cut down and put in the hearse. But the hangman's work was not always done when he had turned off his man. The full sentence for high treason, for example, provided him with much more occupation. In the first place, the criminal was drawn to the gallows and not carried or allowed to walk. Common humanity had mitigated the sentence to being drawn upon a hurdle or sledge, which preserved him from the horrors of being dragged over the stones. Having been hanged, the traitor was then cut down alive, and Jack Ketch set about disemboweling him and burning his entrails before he died. The head was then completely severed, the body quartered, and the dismembered pieces taken away for exhibition at Temple Bar and other prominent places. Here is the account of one such execution. After the traitor had hung six minutes he was cut down, and having life in him, as he lay upon the block to be quartered, the executioner gave him several blows on his breast, which, not having the effect designed, he immediately cut his throat, after which he took his head off, then ripped him open and took out his bowels and heart. And then threw them into the fire which consumed them then he slashed his four quarters and put them with the head into a coffin his head was put on temple bar and his body and limbs were suffered to be buried such proceedings were exceptional however in the majority of executions the body was taken down when life was considered to be extinct and carried away to surgeon's hall for dissection sometimes the relatives used their influence to have the corpse handed over to them often not even in a coffin, and then they carried it away in a coach for decent burial, or to try resuscitation. Occasionally, indeed, hanged men came to life again. In 1740, one Duell was hanged for a rape, and his body taken to Surgeon's Hall in the ordinary routine. As one of the attendants was washing it, he perceived signs of life. Steps were taken immediately, and Duell was brought to, and eventually taken away in triumph by the mob who got wind of the affair, and refused to allow the law to rehang their man. A little earlier something of the same sort had happened to John Smith, who had been hanging for five minutes and a quarter, during which time the hangman, quote, pulled him by the legs and other means to put a speedy period to his life, unquote, when a reprieve arrived and he was cut down. He was hurried away to a neighboring tavern where restoratives were given, blood was let, and after a time he came to himself, quote, to the great admiration of the spectators." According to his own account of the affair, he felt a terrible pain when first the cart drew away and left him dangling, but that ceased almost at once, his last sensation being that of a light glimmering fitfully before his eyes. Yet all his previous agony was surpassed when he was being brought to and the blood began to circulate freely again. A last ignominy, and one strangely dreaded by some of the most hardened criminals, was hanging in irons, when life was extinct the corpse was placed in a sort of iron cage and thus suspended from a gibbet usually by the highway or near the place where the crime had been committed there it hung until it fell to pieces from the effects of time and the weather and only a few hideous bones and scraps of dried flesh remained as evidence of the strong hand of the law With the exception of minor alterations in punctuation and spelling, this book is a complete reprint of three volumes printed and sold by John Osborne at the Golden Ball in Paternoster Row, 1735, A.L.H. End of Introduction Recording by Jim Gallagher